0: After weeks of speculation and conjecture, lawmakers from all sides of the political spectrum are eagerly awaiting a report on Governor Eric Greitens' conduct. It's a document that could be critical for the political future of the GOP chief executive. One of the people that's taking an especially close interest into the governor's future is Senator Jamila Nasheed. The St. Louis Democrat joins us next on Politically Speaking to talk about the governor's woes and the rest of the legislative session in 2018. Let's hit the music.
1: This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's
0: biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Mersenbaum.
1: And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and
2: Joe. I'm going to push back
0: And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague, Joe Manis. And joining us for the lucky fourth time, I believe she is the second guest we ever had on the show back in 2013, but it has been almost three years since she's been on the show. you stunning. And you had to share it with, you know, that rascal, former House Speaker uh, Steve (laughs) Tilley. We are are delighted to have on the, the senator that actually represents... St. Louis Public Radio in the Missouri Senate.
2: Jamila Nasheed, uh, senator for the 5th Senatorial District. Thanks for having me on.
0: And just remind our listeners uh, the the general boundaries of the 5th Senatorial District.
2: Well, we go north all the way to uh, Broadway and south all the way to the river. Everything uh, east of Kings Highway approximately.
0: So we're here to talk about a lot of very crucial and important issues some of which are issues-based, but the topic we're going to talk about first is the future of the governorship. Um, I'm
2: still looking at you wondering why has it been three years? I
0: know.
1: Well, hey, you've been in almost most of our mind, many of my legislative features. In fact, one of my editors, not my current one, had me had banned me on using you for a month or two. <laughs> well, but it's, Sounds but a it's, little bit better. Well, it's it's because, you know, you're a very good uh, – inter- you say what's on your mind.
0: So um, – I want to talk about the governor because you were one of the first Democrats, if not the first Democrat, to call for his resignation after um, it was revealed he had an extramarital affair before he was governor.
1: Yes, which he admitted to on the night of his State of the State address in January.
0: I I want to just let you explain why you feel like the, the governor shouldn't be in office anymore and what was kind of going through your mind when this news broke.
2: Well, you know, when I first heard about it, you know, I was appalled you taken aback. And I was like, oh wow. I mean, this is really, really gonna hurt uh the uh the state of Missouri's image. Okay. And so, you know, I said, Well, the best thing for him to do, meaning the governor, Gritens, is to just step away, step aside and allow for the state of Missouri to begin the healing process. Because I mean, this was all over the news. I mean, that made national news. Yes. Even it still does. Yeah. And so People have resigned for far less offenses as the one the governor, you know, uh, was involved in. Okay, And so I'm saying do the right thing for the betterment of the state so that we can take this black eye and begin to heal it and move forward. And I just thought it was the best thing to do for the state of Missouri is for him to resign.
1: Why do you think I mean, just from your perspective, I mean, everybody's got their own view of this. And only only uh, Governor Greitens knows, you know, why he's taking the path he's taking. Why do you think he has uh, declined to do so, even though actually most of the most vocal uh, people in the Capitol calling for his resignation, most of those are Republicans? Oh, absolutely. Why do you think is I mean that he's decided to try to stick
2: it out? I don't know if it's because of the Navy SEAL mentality that you just keep going and going and going and you just never give up, or if it's just uh, he has this um, self-interest of wanting to continue to go and uh, thinking that at some point uh, the wave will pass and that he can get through it. I think he's self-serving.
0: As Joe alluded to, and as we've tried to hammer home many times, some of the biggest critics of the governor since the situation unfolded have been Republicans. I think some Republicans feel like Greitens, as you mentioned, hurts the image of their party. Others have really disagreed with his actions even before this occurred. Yeah.
1: I mean, our, our previous guest, uh, Senator Igle, I mean, that was his point, was that we weren't getting along with him before. And this just made it worse. Because, because, <laughs> it because I remember
0: show. talking with you before he was inaugurated. And I think that you were somewhat optimistic about him because he was from the city of St. Louis. And, you know, I think that even though he's a Republican, when you live somewhere, you kind of well, understand. he used to the be problems. a Democrat,
2: too, though. You know? That's, That's why I felt a little. I said, okay, well, maybe he's just uh, going into the Republican uh, party simply because he wants to climb the ladder. Oh, oh. Hope, hoping that he still had Democratic views. You so, know? so,
0: you know, like a Republican <laughs> who runs as a Democrat in the city of St. Louis, because, uh, never mind, but continue, Senator. Yeah, and so, you know, I
2: think, though, right now, uh, we are uh, seeing a governor who has really, really been wounded. Okay, I don't see how he comes back. Before this even occurred, the Republican Party they were uh, upset with the way that he was trying to govern with a heavy, with a heavy hand. Okay, he would literally come down to uh, the Senate office, different Senate offices, and say to them, "This is how I want you to vote." And then one one senator, he said, listen, you cannot even vote the way you want to vote because you don't even know what this bill does. I mean, I mean, it was that bad, you know, how he would talk to elected officials and that that whole outside outsider mentality wasn't really working with a lot of the Republicans. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, there there was a lot of pushback with the governor. Uh, when it came to different policies, he was wanting to push.
0: And I want I want to tone in on one particular issue, and I've asked this of the last two senators. Um, around the time that word of the governor's affairs started circulating, um, the governor engineered a freeze of the state low-income housing tax credit.
1: But that was already after he had, had a fight over the state education yes. board. Yes. But yeah, I, I'm just here. gonna
0: I'm just gonna lay it out here. I was first tipped off about this situation right around the time the Lytech episode was going on,
1: which is yeah, the long which time.
0: is in November, and I think there's been a lot of conjecture that this entire reveal of the affair is retribution for engineering that. You were one of the people who was most outspoken against the governor's action on low income housing tax credits. Yeah, is, I've been
2: fighting low-income housing, fighting for low-income housing is tax. Is there any truth to that? To is me. this
0: is this been revealed because people were upset about the low-income housing tax credit situation?
2: No, I don't I don't see that. I don't see I don't know. You know I, mean? I don't know how it came out. Yeah. All I know is it's outright, it's out of the box. Mm-hmm. Uh the jack jack in a what you call the jack jack in a box is out of the box. Mm-hmm. And it can't go back in. Well, and I, I been, don't know how yeah. it who leaked it and why it was leaked. Yeah. Well, well I, don't I had know been right
1: circulating now. among some people for two years. Yes. But in both parties. But it was a matter of anybody willing to say anything or anybody willing. You know, but my point being is that I've had a number of Republicans tell me that there was a lot of. I mean, in other words, a lot of the enemies he made, not just on low income housing, yes, but on a variety of issues that then when. Things started to bubble up. Were more than willing to uh, jump ship or, you know, go after him because they were already upset with him.
0: And I just mentioned that particular episode because if you listen to the attorney of the ex-husband, Al Watkins, Watkins says that there was a lot of reporters being called in the month of December, which happened to be the time when the MHDC made the decision. I will just ask now. Let's 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 take aside the fact of whether it was retribution, because as I've said on previous shows, it's the governor's own fault that he engaged in this behavior and allowed his enemies to use this against him. My question is now, especially as somebody who is a low-income housing tax credit proponent, is one of the reasons you're asking him to resign because you feel that L- Lieutenant Governor Parson would reverse that decision and would, 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 and that would be a better policy outcome for people in your district.
2: That's not why why I'm asking him to resign. Yeah. Even though I do believe that we will have a friend uh, with Lieutenant Governor Parson, being that you know he is friendly to low income housing tax credits and uh, historic tax cre- credits, even brownfield tax credits. However, I called for his resignation. Again, simply because people had to step down for far less uh, problems and, and and not crimes, but far less issues that he's dealing with. Mm-hmm. I mean, take take my good friend, um, John Deal, Deal yeah.
1: who you were okay. pretty close with. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the I mean, former he, House
2: speaker and the former yeah. House speaker. Those guys, they stepped down uh, for just texting. Right. OK. Now, here you have a, a man that admitted, you know, to affairs outside of his marriage. And not only that, now you have four investigations occurring at the same time. You have the the investigation coming from the prosecuting attorney's office here. Rumor has it that there's an investigation with the federal agencies. Uh, you have an investigation with his own party, the, I mean, the uh, Josh Hawley, and there's another one well, with the with the with the, yeah, house. I, I, with, with the house. Yeah, yes. I do want to so, ask I mean with all that going on, yeah. I mean that's way too much for a governor to be able to, to have to deal with and while at the same time trying to govern.
1: Well and that's and that's what I wanna kinda segue into because right. really what's more important for the average person while the other is kind of a sideshow. Although there is the legitimate question of whether or not anything illegal happened. But still, what's the impact of legislation uh that's being considered now at least in the senate you guys are basically waiting to see what this house panel does before you guys have any voice official voice in the gritons matter but how does this affect let's say legislation being heard um bills uh being passed or not passed or discussion about what issues are going to be taken up how does this the controversies affect all that
2: well, you saw it for yourself, Joe, uh, when he did the uh, state of the state, he talked about uh, going throughout the hundred and fourteen counties pushing his tax agenda. Right. Where has he been? Has he, I mean, I don't know how many counties he's gone to thus far. So, I mean, so I mean, that there alone will show you that there has been a negative impact mm-hmm. overall. We haven't heard or seen him. On the, on the House side or the, or the Senate side since that occurred, okay?
0: And I don't think he's, I don't think he's talked to reporters at all since the indictment
2: The, the budget, I mean the budget, everything, I mean, even with higher ed, the House said, no, we're not giving you what you want. They totally strapped his higher ed budget. And they're saying, no, we're starting over from scratch. So, I mean, it's really impacted him a great deal. But the Senate is still moving. Yeah,
1: Yeah, because one of the things I was wondering, and it's kind of a similar, well, different, I'm going to emphasize, it's different from what's going on in Washington, but there's one common element. When the chief executive is under fire and and people from their own party are disagreeing, I mean, in the legislative branch, are disagreeing with what they're doing, and so then they sort of ignore what the chief executive is advocating or doing or saying, oh, that's just... Him being him, so I mean, my point being, does it then set the stage for whoever is the next governor having less impact in the general assembly because legislative leaders have gotten used
2: to running their own show? That's right.
1: I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I
2: think that. Well, you still have a lieutenant governor that presides over the dais
1: Yeah, but the, every yeah. day. Yeah, but okay? but
2: he or she doesn't vote except in a tie. No, but the relationship is still there. Okay. Okay. And so you 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 have a lieutenant governor whose relationship with the legislative body is intact right now. And I don't think that you're going to see what you are seeing on the federal level.
0: So that's actually a great segue to our first clip, which is from Glenn Cage. He's a union leader that I talked with at Democrat Days in Hannibal. And what this clip is about to express is one of the reasons you haven't seen a lot of Democrats join your call for the governor to resign. And it has a lot to do with Lieutenant Governor Mike Parsons' potential effectiveness.
1: Right now, with the current situation that our governor is in, most of the Republicans don't want anything to do with him. They don't want to work with him, So they're not pushing a lot of legislation. They don't want him to have any kind of opportunities to succeed. One of the concerns that that I have from my perspective is that if he's gone, is this going to open the floodgates for the next guy to come in? And he could be just as anti-labor. I mean, he's not been friendly to labor throughout his career, and I don't hardly see that changing once he assumes the role of governor. So the longer greetings is in there and the Republicans
2: don't want to work with them, the, the better it is for us.
0: It's Greitens, by the way. He, he misspoke. But the, I've heard that argument from yeah, other Democrats. Yeah, that's
2: weak, though. That's a weak
0: argument. Explain why.
2: I, I believe it's a weak argument simply because right now the Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the governor's mansion. They have the supermajority. They can get whatever they want done now, regardless of who's there, okay, or who's not there. This guy right here, uh, Greitens, he hurts the party in a major way right now. He's hurting the party in a major way right now. And the Democrats would like to keep him there for the sole purpose of running uh, the, How- the, Dem- How- the house Dems on the backs of what's happening with the Gritens issue. So it's, it, it, did, I see where he's going. I see where he's going, but that's not the issue. The issue is let's keep Gritens in, okay, so that we can continue to bang on him associate him with other Republicans who's running against Democrats and see if we can win some seats.
0: But you don't agree Let's, with that. You think that Greitens should go. So you don't absolutely. agree with that strategy. No, I do not. Because I believe, you, f- you feel like it, I'm getting the sense that you feel like there are there are higher reasons to get rid of him than just political expeditions.
2: Yeah. Moral reasons. OK. Uh, integrity. OK. I mean, those are the type of things that I believe I, I think uh, uh, we should be able to begin to look at and say this is why you should leave.
1: Now, um, one of the things that bringing up the, this, the, this labor guy's perspective, though, there is one of the big issues that's kind of looming is there is that referendum that uh, labor got all the signatures to force on, to force on the right to work law that was passed last session, that will be on the November ballot unless the General Assembly, the Republican leaders in the General Assembly, get the votes to move it to August. You know, and the Republicans are still debating over whether or not they want to do that. Referendums are the one case where the governor has no role in what election it's at. Um, are you, I mean, there's been some speculation that this, all this Greit and stuff has kind of slowed down um, Republicans looking at that. There are others who say, no, they can act even on the last day in May uh, before the session ends to do it. I'm just interested in what you're hearing and what you think may or may not happen on that. And then there's some other labor issues that are already being uh, going through the general, or anti-labor issues, you want to put it that way, that are going through the General Assembly. I'm just interested in your take on that since labor could end up being a big behind-the-scenes issue going into November even.
2: Yeah, I I do believe that, you know, there's... um a scare within the Republican Party to put it on the November ballot simply because they know that if uh, right to work is on the November ballot, it works in favor of uh, Clara McCaskill. So
1: they want to move it to a... So
2: they're going to try to do all they can to be able to put it uh, in the August—put it towards the August. Right. But aren't they also pushing
1: to put uh, uh, another piece of legislation, a pro-right to work— Piece of legislation on the November ballot. I mean, wouldn't that kind of counter that? I mean, I know there's some efforts on that from the Republican. Well, end.
2: even even if they decide to do that, let's say hypothetically speaking, they decide to put that pro uh, right to work.
1: Yeah, so you'd have a two, lot of
2: Republicans. Yeah. We'll you have a lot of union boys and girls that are Republicans. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they are right, really, really pissed off right now at the Republican Party, which many of them actually voted for a uh, Donald Trump. OK, so they're really upset. Right or in Eric
0: Greitens. Eric. I, I have heard lots of Correct. anecdotal evidence Correct. that union people voted for Eric Greitens, even though Eric Greitens was on record dozens of times well, saying he would sign right well, to work. Well, because
2: they weren't paying attention. Yes. They liked the gun ad.
0: I, <laughs> Absolutely. Continue. Absolutely.
2: That's what happened. So, you know, I, I believe that at the end of the day, the Republicans who voted for Donald Trump, as well as Greitens, are now fed up and they're saying enough is enough. We don't care what pro-life, uh, um, um, pro-right-to-work bill you put on the ballot. We're we're going with uh, the labor so, movement.
1: So how does this affect? I mean, you've been one of the more outspoken supporters of Senator McCaskill. I mean, for for months. I mean, I interviewed you last summer for a story on this. So I mean, kind of how do you see some of this playing out? What are you going to be doing? I know there's some you know splits within among African-American Democrats, not on whether to support her, but whether or not they they think she's doing enough in the urban areas. So I'm interested in your, in your take on what's going on, because she did get jumped on for a letter she was trying to get some um, African-American politicians to sign a couple weeks ago.
2: Yeah. Well, I think we can all do more in our prospective districts. You know, uh, some someone may say, oh, Senator, you're not uh, on Cherokee as much as you are on in the Central West End. Or you're not uh, in uh, North St. Louis as much you as much as you are uh, on the on the, the uh, downtown area in the downtown area. So, I mean, we all can have we, we all have we, we all can be accused of, you know, kind of neglecting at some point our, our prospective districts. OK, however, I don't think that that should be the conversation right now. Especially at a time when there's a possibility of the Democratic Party losing the Senate. Two seats away from losing the Senate. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Well, well you, you, th- you mean you mean they, gaining the Senate, but but they have to keep everything they, they, they have I don't, and
0: I don't gain think to. they can win the Senate without McCaskill being reelected. Right. Exactly.
2: Yeah, they're right. Winning the Senate, right? So so if if McCaskill lose
1: Then the Democrats have no hope of taking the Senate It's
2: over. Right. And so I'm saying, let's look at the bigger picture here, because everything that Donald Trump touches is anti health, anti veteran, anti education. I mean, we don't need we don't need another senator carrying the water for Donald Trump's poor policies.
0: Well, this this brings into the, the recent Kansas City Star article, which I think you were quoted in. And this came a few months after Joe wrote an article, which I edited, about the potential conflicts between African-American leaders and, and Senator McCaskill. First of all, were you asked to sign that letter basically condemning Bruce Franks's comments that was mentioned in that article?
1: Well, it didn't no. really condemn it. It just tried to highlight what she
0: – Were you asked to sign that letter? I don't know what
1: letter you're talking about.
0: Okay. That was the, the – it was –
2: What letter was it? I mean, well, what did the letter say? Okay. Well, what the
1: well, letter said – Well, the answer said. is no. Well, what the letter – Said was kind of trying to promote what she had been doing for urban uh, residents, including African Americans. They were trying to get African American leaders to sign it. It was did not. It wasn't technically anti-Bruce Franks. Okay. I mean, and and she and Franks have talked off and on, but he has been critical of his his contention has been. Well, he has said he would support her. This goes back to last week. Well, and he, right she wasn't, he well, was saying she wasn't just,
2: just, doing it But little, he has a right to feel the way right, he feels. And exactly. no one should ever negate uh, that feeling when it comes to African-Americans and Democratic Party. Right.
0: Yeah, and I'm just going to – I want to give a little bit more context. And this is from the Kansas City Star article. And I'm reading this verbatim. African American leaders in Missouri are frustrated with the way they see as Senator Claire McCaskill's lackluster engagement with minority voters. Frustrated enough that they refused to sign a letter pushing back against comments made last month by Bruce Franks, a prominent black activist and state legislator from St. Louis, who called on McCaskill to show up and earn the support of minority voters in her state. In response to Franks comments, McCaskill had asked African American elected officials in Kansas City and St. Louis to sign the letter. Among those who were approached were uh, Representative Cleaver, Ray, Lacey Clay, Gail McCann Beatty. And all of them declined to sign the letter. And the letter never
1: went out. And to be fair to Representative Franks, what he had been saying that stuff, as I said, I mean, I...
0: For weeks, if for, not I mean, months. For,
1: for months. I mean, I had interviewed him in October for my feature where he spoke to a whole bunch of uh, Democrats in Richmond Heights. And said the same thing. So So I think that so, but I, but this is what I believe. Though. So he's been consistent, is my point.
2: Not a, a month or six months out and start, you know griping about where have you been? I mean, two years or a year out, you know, it's, it's the conversation that those conversations are supposed to be had immediately after you she got elected. Okay? When are you coming here? What are you gonna do for the African American community? Not six months out before the next election? I mean, so we cannot continue to to be reactionaries, okay? We have to be able to hold the Democratic Party foot to the fire, feet to the fire, right, immediately after they get elected. Mm
0: -hmm. So what do you think is the the prospects for McCaskill at this point?
2: It's going to be an uphill battle. It's going to be an uphill battle. But I truly believe at the end of the day that the Democratic Party is going to— turn up the volume in a way that they've never turned the volume up before to keep that seat.
0: We'll, we'll go back to politics. And, near, and, no, and I'm going to
2: work extremely hard.
0: We'll go back to politics near the end of the show. But I do want to shift back to what is kind of left undone in the legislative session. One of them is a potential sizable tax cut that's being pushed by a number of your Republican colleagues. Um, this, it's
1: different than, the, than what the governor was pushing. But yeah.
0: We had uh, Senator Bill Igel a Republican from Weldon Spring, on our show last week. He talked about one of the reasons why he was pursuing this route and also pushed back against Democratic criticisms that it was going to negatively impact social services and education. Here is Senator Igel from last week's Politically Speaking. I think it's irresponsible to have uh, ballooning budgets uh, increasing every single year to record levels, taking more and more out of the paychecks of a Missouri workers every single year without some sort of restraint and without some sort of... Uh, relief to go to those family households. You know, I think it's ridiculous that, you know, we have a tax code here in Missouri that, uh, unlike places like Texas and Florida and Tennessee that are growing rapidly in terms of their population, our growth is stagnant. The reason our growth is stagnant is because we charge you 6% to do business here, and those states don't charge you any percent on your income. So uh, I think that that's incredibly irresponsible when clearly there are other states doing business in a better manner. So. You're going to hear a lot of those arguments when this bill comes back up for, for final passage. Um, it's not even really certain, though, whether Senator Igles' bill will be the, the the mechanism to cut taxes or somebody else's. What's going to be your mindset when when this comes to the floor again?
2: Well, you know, I, I've always been opposed to uh, any tax cut bill that Republicans push, because at the end of the day, I don't believe it's in the best interest of uh, the constituents here in the state of Missouri. I don't think you can compare Texas to St. Louis when it comes to reducing the uh, income taxes, you know, individual income taxes. Well, because the, the Texas three is states, an all-state.
1: Yeah, the, the three states that he mentioned, Texas, Florida, and Tennessee, all three have no income tax. Right. Now, I did some stories on this a couple years ago. They have a lot of other taxes to replace it. Uh, you know and Texas
2: I, is a big all-state yeah correct I was just going. Yeah, you don't Texas. need that you don't need that income tax
0: you and Texas also has oil and and it, it also has a very diversified economy, depending
1: on where yeah you but go. they have a lot of heavier uh local taxes taxes on other things right
2: right but continue senator so you know I think that at the end of the day we saw what happened with the uh, with Kansas City
0: or at Kansas I mean I'm sorry
2: Kansas yeah and when they got rid of uh the uh their corporate income taxes now they're going back to repeal it and say that it was the that was the biggest uh, disaster for 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 Kansas. Yeah,
0: they repealed it a couple years ago. Yeah, continue.
2: Yeah, and so and so now here here you have St. Louis and the state of Missouri. I'm sorry, the state of Missouri wanting to go down that same road, which I don't think is going to work for us. I think we're going to lose revenue in a in a way that we've never lost revenue before.
1: Now, um, actually, when this airs, uh, a story that I just was finishing up will have will have also been airing. Which has to do with the impact on the current budget of the tax cuts that are already in place on the state and federal level. The state is losing about uh, between two about about 220 million a year. Um, This is the calendar year from the state tax cuts that were approved in 2014 and that finally began to go into effect uh, in 2017, and then also a close to 60 million from the federal tax cuts. So the the state tax cuts, the initial state tax cuts because they're finally going to effect cut are cutting about 160 million in 2018 from what this what the state is taking in. Now what is intriguing to me, the kicker is the state's income has to increase by 150 million every for, for that cut for, for, the, for the next level. But that cut actually amounts to more than that. So in other words, like if your state income goes up 150 million, those tax cuts go into effect. They actually are taking 160 million. And this is separate from the federal. So each year that goes into effect, there's another another round of that. So there's a addition effect. So I'm not saying that's good or bad, but my point is that's that's still playing out plus these other um, corporate tax cuts that were approved about the same time that ended up being bigger than uh the state had thought so this is before this current this new round of tax cuts are approved i mean is there much discussion about this about the fact the state's already losing money because and i'm not saying it's good or bad but 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 the state's income is is going down
2: it's bad because I mean you don't you don't reduce and you don't reduce your your general revenue without finding a way to increase it and in, in some other way or matter right manner and they haven't been able to do that. What they're looking to do is cut 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 uh, social service programs. Higher ed was hit. You saw what the governor did with higher ed. I mean it was it was it was a drastic cut to higher ed.
1: Now the house has restored some of that, but they had to cut a deal with the schools as far as. How much higher their, their and, and you're
2: their you're still on the Committee. Senate Appropriations
0: Committee, right? Correct. Do right. you think that that those the re- restoration of those higher education cuts will will survive when it goes to the Senate budget process? Oh, absolutely. And and explain why.
2: Well, because the the um, Senator Brown and uh the uh, props chair on the house side they they they've gotten together and they said listen we're not going to hold the line for the governor we're going to work together collectively for the betterment of higher ed and so they are talking and they're and they're working with each other and i think that that's how you get back to the, the 9%
0: yeah. And it's a, right. big, it's a big deal for your district because I actually interviewed the president of Harris Stowe State University last year and they got cut by 10 percent, which was, I don't know, a million or two million dollars, which may not seem like a lot. But when you look at the fact their entire budget is like very small, it was pretty devastating for a school that small. So the fact that they could see more cuts would probably hurt them even oh, more. The, the doors were closed. Yeah. It it would be even, and then that's just for for a one small school. We're not talking about bigger ones too. Well,
1: and of course, if you recall last session, there was this last there was this effort to try to protect some of these uh, services that low income elderly receive for, to try to keep them in their homes as opposed to them going into nursing homes, and then the Medicaid costs go up, and actually the state has less control over that. Uh, I know there's been, I mean. There, there was a temporary solution. The governor rejected it for various reasons. I'm going to get into the details, but nothing was done. I know that's being debated now a bit. And, and the
0: Senate so, seemed to have a better, like a, like a better, like more, more consensus on this issue. But than
2: the House. how do you deal with that if you still got all this tax cut stuff going on? And, and I think that that's what they're going to have to figure out. I don't see how you deal with it in a positive. Because if you're constantly cutting taxes and you're saying that you want to keep seniors in their homes, it just does, I mean, uh, you want to make sure that individuals, the uh, seniors that are in uh, the nursing homes, they are taken care of and they can stay there. I don't see how it happens.
1: So my point is, where do you guys go from here? Especially with just, I mean, we're, it's, well, here we are, we're just about five weeks left in the session.
2: Well, if I was a part of the Republican Party, I can tell you where we go from here. Right okay. now, they're controlling—they're uh, uh, controlling the show here, and they're not talking to us about what they're looking to do until they do it. And so we have to just wait and see what they bring forward, and if we don't like it, we push back against it, and we fight it.
1: Now there was a bunch of abortion bills, uh, abortion stuff that just passed the House that now is going to be looming in the session. And that social issue always tends to... Bubble up
0: during an election year. Yeah,
1: bubble up during election year. And sometimes things get shut down, you know what I mean, which affects other bills. Yeah. What do you think that's going to happen
2: this I haven't this time? heard a lot about a PQ uh, this session. I don't know if they are looking to um, bring forth the PQ uh, signatures.
0: And by the way, for our listeners who don't know what a PQ is, it's called previous question. It basically kills a filibuster.
2: That's right.
1: And it's only on that state level because Aaron Burr killed it on the federal level. (laughs) Thank
0: thank you for the Hamilton reference, Joe.
1: Well, no, but that—well, it's
2: true. It had nothing to do with Hamilton. That was before he shot So, And the the House, you know, they PQ like, what, 50 times already in the House, right? So that's just normal in the House. But in the Senate, it's rare. You know, you're not going to—how many PQs have we had within the last 10 years?
0: Um, Probably—okay, that's a very interesting question. Um, from 2008 to yeah. 2014, there were zero. Yeah. And then there's been one or two every year since.
2: About eight or nine. Yeah. Don't quote me on that. So, yeah.
0: But enough uh, histor- history lessons. I do want to talk about your political future. Um, you have announced that you are going to run for Board of Alderman president, which is an election that happens in the spring of next year.
1: And the incumbent, Louis Reed, already is planning to run for re-election.
0: As well as Alderwoman Megan Green, Green, who's in the 15th Ward. Um your term doesn't end until 2020, so my question is, why have you decided to seek out this office that could potentially, if you win, short 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 circuit your state legislative career?
2: Well, I think now more than ever before, we need strong leadership back home, and and I believe that I'm that person. You know, I, I've been able to accomplish a lot on the state, uh, on the on the house side as well as the Senate. And I've cultivated relationships uh, that would be, that would serve the city well once I'm the president of the Board of aldermen. Right now, we have a city, and I've talked about it before, the tales of two cities. When you look at, when you go uh, south of Del Mar, all you see is development. You see uh, progress, a key, a cortex. You see all of this great development going on. And then when you come north of Del Mar, all you see is decay. All you all you hear about is hopelessness. Uh, and I don't believe a person that held a seat for 16 years or been on the president of the Board of Autumn for 16 years and North St. Louis looked the way it looks, even being one of the most powerful positions on the Board of e I believe something's wrong there.
0: I believe Louis Reed was first elected in 2007, so it would be about 12 years. But I, I understand As- your point.
2: As the president. Yes. He was, he was an alderman before then, though.
0: Yes, he was. Right.
2: Yes. So what I'm saying to you is that here you have an African-American, president of the Board of Aldermen, African-American on the Board of ENA, and ask yourself, why should St. Louis look like that? Why, why should, they look, why should St. Louis look, North St. Louis look the way it looked? Apparently, someone's been neglecting it in the most powerful positions, and so I truly, I truly believe at the end of the day that I will bring more to the table uh, for not just North St. Louis, but for a better St. Louis.
1: Now, as most of our listeners know, uh, St. Louis has a rather unusual governing system. In effect, the president of the Board of Aldermen has almost as much power as the so, mayor.
0: Especially when it comes to budgetary matters. Yes,
1: exactly, and the comptroller. So basically it's a three-person board board the Board of Estimate and Apportionment, that basically governs the city on most major stuff, especially financial stuff. The reason I'm bringing this up is if you're president of the Board of Aldermen, you're one vote on that three board. How, I mean, uh, have you been talking to Comptroller Darlene Green on what you'd like to be doing differently? What's your relationship with Mayor Lida Cruson? I mean, just, I mean, because it's one thing to advocate change, but you have to have at least one other Backer on the uh, board of estimate apportionment to get anywhere with it
2: you know i think that you need you need a leader you know you need someone that can lead and you need someone that can be persuasive you need someone that truly understands that uh, so goes north st louis so goes this whole city okay and that while it's okay to do development uh south of del mar If North St. Louis, uh, if we continue to neglect North St. Louis in a manner in which we're neglecting North St. Louis, we're going to continue to lose big corporations. We're going to continue to have the highest murder rate in the country. We're going to continue to have individuals moving out of the city and not wanting to be here. Uh, We have to be able. uh, You need someone that's going to be able to articulate the need for one St. Louis uh, and. Not just give give monies away to those individuals uh, who want to come and do do business in the St. Louis area without saying, hey, how will this impact not just the South area, but the whole city?
0: And I just want to let you know and let our listeners know that we're going to bring the Board of Aldermen president candidates back before the election and get a little bit more granular. I, I appreciate you coming on and saying what you're going to do from a philosophical standpoint.
1: But there is this timing factor because we've got this big midterm statewide election, which with, with the Senator uh, McCaskill on the ballot, her likely opponent, Missouri Tano, Josh Hawley. Then you also have the um, state auditors also on that. So you've got that election in November. And then right around, I mean, it's just a few months. Yeah. I mean, just, what, three months? Yeah. yeah. Uh, where the, the city election is. So if you're going to be doing a lot for McCaskill, I mean, how are you going to balance all this?
2: So what I'll do is right now, McCaskill race is very important, you know, and what I want to be able to do is go throughout the city of St. Louis. Yeah. And, and speak on her behalf. That way I'll, I'll continue to be visible, but I won't be pushing my own agenda. Mm-hmm. I'll be pushing Clara's agenda.
0: But after 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 okay. November 2018, it's all about it's all agenda. about.
2: Madam President Jamila Nasheed.
0: Now I do want to ask though and I, I want to I want to get into a little future speculation. Let's say you do win in 2019. That means you would leave the Senate and there would probably be a internal scramble to replace you. One of the interesting non-filings that occurred uh, I think a couple weeks ago is State Representative Joshua Peters did not uh, file for re-election for his House seat. He had been talked about as a possible successor to you. And now that appears not to be the case anymore. The other person I've heard who is interested in your seat is Representative Bruce Franks, um, someone who I think you have cultivated a closer relationship with since he was elected. But you were a Penny Hubbard supporter for a long time. Um, Would you be comfortable with someone like Representative Franks succeeding you in the Missouri Senate?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Bruce Franks, I've watched him uh, over uh, the last uh, year or so. And he's grown tr- uh, dramatically, I mean, drastically. I mean, this guy here, you know, he knows how to get things done. When, I'll, I'll tell you one thing, his first year there, the budget came to the floor. He literally put $6 million in the budget for um, I think it was jobs summer jobs. For yeah. Yeah, for yes, he slave. did. I,
1: I, mean, I, I was there.
2: $6 million. And that was an amendment. He wasn't even on the budget. OK, he's
0: not on the budget committee.
2: Right. And so and so and so and so, I mean, that tells you that, you know, he can that shows you there that he can be effective. OK, I will be supporting Bruce for uh, the Senate. You will. That, yes.
0: Th- that's news, although you, it may not be news to other people, but I, uh, maybe it might be. But,
2: but, you know, I'll be supporting Bruce for the Senate if you get elected. That's when I get elected. Okay, but but okay. even
0: if you I mean. I, you're going to be term limited out in 2020 so i mean people are already thinking about this right now i don't know if anyone else i assume other people will run for that seat um because the fifth district has always been competitive. You took out an incumbent senator to become the the fifth district. So this senator. will be the
2: second incumbent I take out.
0: Well, we'll have to see. And as I said before, we will be having you on sooner than three years from now because we're going to bring you back right before the board of alderman election. And we're oh, going
1: to, along with, I mean, in separate shows for the other her other. Oh rivals. no! Deb- no
2: debate.
0: No debate. Well, gonna,
1: well, that may be something else the station tries to push, but, but that's separate. Well, one from thing this. we like
0: to do with our shows when there's when there's contested races for really important offices like this is we like to give the candidates separate opportunities to provide their specific vision, and you will get to join our illustrious five-time politically speaking club when you do that, which has only been only been achieved by two other people: Senator uh, Senator Scott Sifton and State Treasurer Eric Schmidt. So. You'll be in a class all by yourself when The that honors happens. club. The honors <laughs> club. So how could people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the world wide web?
2: Uh, Jamila Nasheed. You can just go to Jamila Nasheed, Google Jamila Nasheed, and everything's come come up. Well, everything will come up.
0: How would people follow you on Twitter, Okay, Jill? it's
1: J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S.
0: You can follow me on Twitter at J Rosenbaum, read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. Uh, and I'm Jason Rosenbaum. I'm telling everybody in St. Louis, Atchison County. Pemiscot County and all over the world, that you will succeed. Have a good week, everybody.